Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. I, uh, my heart is just so full of joy, so full of joy. Uh, that special music blessed us. I feel so joyful. Those lyrics were wonderful. Brother Louis. Thank you so much for that message. Uh, That was truly inspired and necessary. And uh, we thank God for faithful men like you to encourage us, to encourage us. And I want to also thank Sister Olivia for the youth study today and also the youth study last week as well as the sermon last week. All of these are tying together and, and telling us now is the time to develop our faith. We're not joking around. We live in very, very, very serious times. And now is the time to strengthen our conviction. The Lord is a rock. We can hold to him. And as you said, whether he delivers us or not, this is not the issue. The issue is the God of Israel is the true God. And we worship him. So I just uh, want to thank you so much. I also feel a lot of joy, and last week when we were sitting around in our conversation afterwards, Sister Marilyn, uh, you brought a lot of joy to me. I just, it was a very quiet moment for me, but I just thought, yes. And it's when you said, uh, Sister, and just for those of you who are new to us, Sister Michelle, uh, she died two weeks ago. And she was a faithful sister here with us. She was Sister Marilyn's daughter. And she suffered from some significant disabilities. And Sister Marilyn pointed out last week when we were talking, uh, she, they live in London, or she lived in London, and she would travel here to fellowship with us. And she considered Burlington her home because, as you said, she felt safe here. She felt that nobody was judging her. We were not looking down on her. She just felt fully accepted here. And when I heard those words, it, it just brought a lot of joy. In fact, it does uh, remind me or or point us back to when we founded Burlington, what our roadmap said. And what we said was we wanted to build a safe community where every member would feel safe and valued. And that's what we did, and that's what we see evidenced in Sister Marilyn's comment of how Sister Michelle felt when she was with us. We recently completed a survey called the Natural Church Development Survey. And this is a standardized survey for churches focused on growth. We completed this survey, and that's what I'd like to talk to you about today, kind of um, Part Bible study, part sermon. We've been studying the book of Acts. So I actually want to continue in the book of Acts. We're up to Acts 6 now. But prior to Acts 6, I want to focus on natural church development and this concept of the minimum factor. And then I want us to look at Acts 6 through the lens of the minimum factor. Are we okay with the uh, slides? We'll need the slides. I I have no sermon if the slides don't work. Okay, great. Perfect. Answered prayer. So this is a modified version of our roadmap. And and again, for those of you who are new to us, 
when we founded Burlington a couple of years ago, we got together as a congregation and said, what is it that we want to build? We are now modifying this based on the national roadmap, and we want to make sure that we're in alignment with the national roadmap. So I'm going to, we're going to hand this out to all the households and ask for your feedback. But in a nutshell, our guiding principle is that we ought to know how to behave ourselves as the house of God. Right? And that is to make this a safe place for everyone. We should not be a congregation that bites and devours one another. We should be a congregation that edifies one another. Our mission is to work together within the GTA to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to prepare God's people for marriage to Christ. Our vision is that we're a dynamic, actively serving congregational family. We are a family. And Michelle certainly knew that she was family here. We're a real family. We're, we're not a biological family. We're a congregational family. We're a spiritual family. And every one of us as members of the body of Christ, must be actively serving and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Key goals, to be best in class in preaching the gospel, to be a model Christian community, to retain our youth for Christ as they transition into adulthood, and to nourish new and mature converts. And then finally, our core values of caring, courtesy, and consideration. So we're going to give that to you and, and compare it to our old roadmap and then give us feedback so that we can then finalize this roadmap on a single page. If you want to know what CGI Burlington is about, it's on one page. And we're all oriented and focused and moving in the same direction. So we filled out this survey, Natural Church Development, and all of us filled it out. And I want to share with you the results. First, who filled out the survey? And this is really fascinating. The results, or this is the demographics, show you that the core of our membership, first of all, are uh, adults in the 41 to 50 age group. And that is kind of a mixed feelings that I have about this. On the one hand, it's, what it tells us is that we have strong, energetic, young adults to lead the church. People with energy who, who can do things. On the other hand, it tells me that I'm over the hill. <laughs> so I'm kind of in that upper end. But that's great. The other thing that's really great here is the number of youth in our congregation. This is unusual for Church of God congregations. Most of them, when they look at this demographic, these two, top two bars are really broad. And, and this, this is very narrow. But for us, we have a lot of young people. The youth are our future. And so we spend a lot of time in this congregation preparing lessons and messages to develop our youth into those future leaders. The other thing that's really fascinating here is that not only are we kind of evenly split between adults and youth, we're evenly split between male and female. And so that gives us a nice balanced congregation. And, and God has, uh, I think it was Pastor Murray that said God has given us this congregation. Uh, it's a gift from God. We have to utilize this gift. We can't just take it for granted. We can't just come together and say, oh, this is really nice for me. I, I'm really enjoying this. We're here for a purpose. And so it's really good for us to see this. Now, as a congregation, we were surveyed, and we've identified from our own perspective what is the strength of this congregation? 
So there are 11, fa- 11 attributes along the bottom. And the one that stands out significantly is loving relationships. So our own evaluation, our own experience is that when we come to services, we love one another. Brethren, this is significant. It's significant because of the sermonette that we just heard. We are on a spectacular collision course with this world. It's going to be spectacular. And the scripture says, many will betray one another. Why? Because their love will wax cold. So the fact that we have a congregation that is developing loving relationships says to me, as a pastor, we're building the ability to inoculate ourselves against betraying one another. If we really know one another, we really love one another, we will sacrifice ourselves for one another. If we're in a congregation that doesn't really love one another, it's easy to betray one another. So this is really, really important. And, And that score of 80, by the way, is astronomical. So you can see here, and this is the, why we've done this, this survey is, uh, it's standardized. So we can run it through an engine, have some analysis done, and have it come back to us. And based on this, what it's saying is, if you have a score less than 35, that is an incredibly low score. That is a serious, serious weakness in your congregation. On average, the score is 50, so 50 is considered average, and anything over 65 is considered strong. Loving relationships for us is 80. And I, I, I'm, I'm certain that in all the congregations, all of, all of our congregations have different strengths, different weaknesses, but 80 is a phenomenal score. So that really tells us that there is something uh, happening here. Now, what is behind the 80? So these are the questions that were asked to, that averaged out to say that loving relationships are 80. And you can see here some of them are, some of the scores are as high as 90. But, so the one that says 90 says, I can rely upon my friends at church. So we, have, we are building relationships in such a way that if any one of us are in trouble, we know that we can rely on one another. And we scored that 90. 87, in our church, it's possible to talk with other people about personal problems. So we are comfortable with each other enough that if I'm going through a personal crisis, I can sit down with Brother Gord and I don't have to pretend. I can be transparent and I can say, this is what I'm going through. Will you pray for me? And the brethren here feel this way about one another. At 84... If I listen to 84, we all scored this very high. Again, it's off the chart. 65 is considered high. We scored this 84. If I have a disagreement with a member in our church, I will go to them in order to resolve it. It doesn't say if if I have a disagreement with a member of the church, I'll go to everybody else and tell them about the disagreement. No, it says we will go straight to our brother and say, what, what, what happened here? Well, why did you say this? Why? Because of the love and the trust that we have for each other. I, there must be a misunderstanding. 
So, so let's say Sister Eva said something last week that hurt my feelings. My reaction is not, Sister Eva must be an evil person. I have to go and tell everybody else about it. My reaction is, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding. So I'm going to go to Sister Eva and say, I'm just curious what you meant by Adrian's an awful person. <laughs> I'm sure I'm misinterpreting what you, what you said. And then that would give her the opportunity to explain to me what she meant. You know, she meant awesome, but English is not her first language. <laughs> so I think that's wonderful uh, that we are building a community where we are loving each other. We are uh, real with each other. We can turn to each other for help and we'll speak to each other when there's disagreement. And that's, again, important because as new people come in, they need to come into a healthy environment. If we're not healthy and people are searching for God, and they come here, all we'll do is make them unhealthy. Maybe even turn them away from God. So we cannot have that. This concept of natural church development, brethren, what it's saying is this. And in fact, uh, when Brother Murray and I located the venue we were at before we came here, our, our landlord, the, the, the church that we were subleasing for, subletting from, you know, we told her we're a small group, the, the church is bigger than our needs, but we hope to grow into it. And her reaction was, if you're healthy, you will grow. If you're healthy, you will grow. I thought, wow, that's profound. And that's really the engine behind this concept of natural church development. In other words, when churches are healthy, they will grow naturally. You, you don't have to do all kinds of strange things to make a church grow. If the church is healthy, God will bless it with growth. If we create a healthy environment, God will be happy to send broken people here because he knows they'll be made whole here. If we're unhealthy, God is not going to send fragile people to us so that we can devour them. So this concept of natural church growth, let's go to Mark 4 to see the scriptural underpinning for it. Mark 4. Mark 4, and go to verse 26. <clears throat> and this is Christ himself speaking. And he said, Christ, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground. So I have some seed, pumpkin seed, tomato seed. I, I cast it into the ground. That's all I do. And should sleep and rise night and day. So I'm not really working. I'm sleeping. And I get up and I go back to sleep and I get up again. But the seed is in the ground. Once it's in the ground, it does something. And Christ says here, and the seed should spring and grow up. And he, the one that cast the seed, doesn't know how this happened. All I did was put the seed in the ground, and because the seed was in the ground, it grew. This is what we mean by natural growth. For the earth brings forth fruit of herself. There's, there's, there's nothing I, I do to the earth. It's, it's the nature of the earth that if you put seed in it, the earth will bring forth fruit from that seed. And this happens all over the world. 
anywhere in the world where you can plant seed, what the earth will do is bring forth fruit from that seed by itself. And he, the one who casts the seed, doesn't know how this happens. First the blade, then the ear, then after that, the full corn in the air. Are we okay with this? Yeah. Okay. We won't need it right for a while. And uh, Jennifer, maybe what you could do is open up my laptop uh, just as a backup so we're ready in case we don't have that. I, I wouldn't do that because the heat. Yeah. Great. Verse 29. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. So he really is not involved. The earth does it. But when the fruit comes, he immediately harvests the fruit. So in the same way, spiritually, when a church is healthy, it will grow and it will produce first fruits. And as soon as those first fruits are ready, Christ will come and harvest us. And it happens naturally. It's just the function of the church. It's what the church does. It produces fruit. And he said, where unto shall we liken the kingdom of God, verse 30, or what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, it is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. I might add, all the arrogant, unbelieving, pagan seeds that are in the earth. We are sown less than these. They have more power than us. They can destroy us if they want, as we heard in the sermonette. But that doesn't stop the function of the church of continuing to produce first fruits. So we start out less than all the seeds that are in the earth, but verse 32, but when it is sown, it grows up naturally. Natural church development. And it becomes greater than all the herbs. And shoots out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. We have purpose. We have purpose. As the church grows, it's going, we're going to become so significant, we're going to become the greatest of all seeds on the earth. Why? So that we can sit back and say, wow, aren't we great? No, because we have purpose. There's a way that we can then serve, that we can only serve when we are great. But it's a process, and it's a natural process. If the church is healthy, it'll produce first fruits naturally. Now, bear that in mind. But as you bear in mind this sort of natural development, there's also natural choking. So, so there is actually something that the sower of the seed has to do. So, so the sower of the seed can plant the seed, Sit back, but if you actually do nothing, weeds will grow up and choke your seed, and your seed will not grow. So even though you don't have to participate in what the earth actually does, what you do need to do is remove the weeds. Remove those things that will choke the seed and produce and prevent you from producing fruit. So when the grain of mustard seed is small, 
That is Satan's opportunity to choke it. Once it becomes great, it's greater than Satan. He can do nothing at that point. So his purpose and the purpose of all of his demons is to choke the seed while he can. And so when we talk about natural church development, yes, it's true. If the church is healthy, it will grow. But what we also need to be concerned with is removing weeds. Tending the church. Removing those factors that can choke the church. Look at the first part of Mark chapter 4. Go up to verse 3. Go up to verse 3. Verse 3. Hearken. This is Christ speaking. Behold. There went out a sower to sow. So this is the very same concept of the sower sows and the earth does its thing. And fruit is produced. But it's not all happy, happy, no problem. Not every seed that is sown produces fruit. So let's look at this. Verse 4. And it came to pass over time, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. So it didn't fall into the earth. And the fowls of the air came. They have eagle eyes. And when they see food, they, they zero in and they take it. Satan's demons, his army, have eagle eyes. And if we're not sown into good soil, if we don't find a good environment where we can grow, he's going to pluck us up. And they devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth. There was some earth there, but not much. And immediately it sprang up. And because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, it was scorched. Brother Louis' sermonette was talking about when the sun's up and things get hot. And if you haven't been preparing some depth of conviction, if you've been in a church that sort of, you know, praise God and and you'll get a new car, if, if that's your doctrine, when the sun gets hot and, and you're facing a sword instead of a car dealer, you're like, what happened to God? Because you didn't have depth. message we heard earlier was about depth. doesn't matter. We know the God of Israel is real. And he's in control. It was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up, and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. And he said to them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. So let us see the church as the environment of the seed. And let us ask ourselves, are we creating an environment that is healthy for the seed? So that the seed can just grow naturally and produce fruit naturally. All we have to do is provide the right environment. Get rid of the thorns. Make sure that the seed is not in shallow ground. Make sure that it hasn't fallen on uh, rock. We just have to provide the good soil. And the members will produce the fruit naturally. Some 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. Verse 10. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve 
asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. So this is exclusive knowledge for the church. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. And they're not ready to be part of this. They don't have the root. And he said to them, Don't you know this parable? And how then will you know all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately, immediately, and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are likewise, they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves. And so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And brethren, I don't know how many times I can say this, but affliction and persecution for the word's sake is coming. It's coming. I I can't say it's going to be here tomorrow, but it's coming. And it's going to be spectacular. And and as a pastor of God, I'm not telling you that this is all going to be rosy. The sermonette that we heard wasn't saying, it's all going to be rosy. We praise God, and we get a new house, and a new car, and nice friends, and nice music, and everything goes well for the Christian. No. We hold fast to the Word of God, and everything goes well eventually. But we grow by the trial, by the affliction. And Christ is telling us here, this is coming, but we must have root. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The whole purpose of the seed is to become fruitful. But they allow the thorns to take them from their very purpose, and they become unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground. Good ground. Brethren, that's our responsibility, is to create good ground, to look after the ground. And if the ground is looked after, the members will produce fruit naturally. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. Now, with this in mind, brethren, let's go to Revelation 2, the passage that Caitlin read earlier, as an example of how Christ looks at the church. So this is the church in Ephesus. It's one congregation of many, but it's a sample. It gives us an idea of how God looks at the ground. Is it good ground? Is it stony ground? Is it thorny ground? Revelation 2 and verse 1 Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand. In other words, pay attention. This is Christ our Lord speaking. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works. I am paying attention. You're you're part of my body. I'm looking at what you're doing. With scrutiny, and I know your works. 
and your labor. You're working really hard. And your patience. And how you cannot bear them which are evil. There is such a thing as evil. There are evil people. And, and this church couldn't stand them. God knows. God knows how much they hated evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles. There are so many religious people that claim to speak for God, that claim to be sent by God. Ephesus wasn't having it. They didn't fall for it. They were doing good work. What did they do? They tried them. People came saying, I speak for God, and they tested them and found that they did not speak for God and found them liars. This is phenomenal. This is good work. This is the right work. The the pastors of this church need to be commended for doing this work with the brethren. Found them liars. You speak for God? let's, Let's examine this. You're a liar. And you have borne and you've had patience. And for my name's sake, you have labored and you have not fainted. This is Christ's evaluation of the church at Ephesus. This is a good church. This sounds like good ground. It is good ground. But verse 4, this is Christ speaking. He says, nevertheless, I have something against you. Christ knows their works, commends them on their works, and then tells them. He has something against them. It's not all good. There's something that concerns him. What is it? Because you have left your first love. In the language of natural church development, this leaving of the first love, we would call the minimum factor. So the maximum factor here might be the fact that they really know the truth. And they're holding on to the truth. And when people come to deceive them, they're able to put a spotlight on the falsehood and not fall for it. So that might be the maximum factor. And that might be why the church would grow. Because they really know the truth. But what Christ is saying is, there's a minimum factor. You haven't quite shut the door on Satan. You've left a little crack. And if you leave a little crack, Satan has big boots. He's going to kick the door in. And he's going to come in, and he's going to destroy the church. So while you're leveraging your maximum factor, you make sure that you address the minimum factor. Because that's where the risk is. The maximum factor is where growth is. The minimum factor is like a chain is as weak as its uh, chain is as strong as its weakest link. Look after all the links. Don't allow a weak link, because everything will fall apart. So he says, "I have this against you. You've left your first love." So he's not just, "I have this against you." I just want you to know. It's I'm telling you what the minimum factor is. Now do something about it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent, turn around, fix it and do the first works or else I will come unto you quickly. Christ is not fooling around. He will deal with us swiftly and I will remove your candlestick out of out of its place unless you repent. I would say, brethren, that dealing with the minimum factor is serious. Christ is saying, congratulations, I really appreciate this. This is really good. This is really good. You're very strong here. Deal with this. 
And if you don't deal with it, I'll deal with you. So when we identify a minimum factor in a congregation, it's not to be ignored. It's to be addressed. And that's what the instruction is saying here. So we have our strength. And it's very clear that that a loving environment, brethren who truly are genuine with each other, have deep affection for each other, this is our strength. And, and this, we can grow with this. If people come and visit and they experience this positive environment, they'll want to come back. So this is how we will grow organically. But the minimum factor can destroy us. And we have said that we have a minimum factor. And, and the concept here, if you take, if you take the, these uh, bars and just put them in a circle, in a, as if they were a barrel. Then that's the metaphor here. That if we try to fill the barrel, it's going to leak on the minimum factor. So, so we can, we, our, our growth is constrained by the minimum factor. In a way you could say, it doesn't matter how strong the strengths are if we allow the weakness to remain. Because the barrel can only contain the height of the weakness. And that's what we see Christ pointing out here. So our minimum factor, where we actually fell below average, is need-oriented evangelism. Need-oriented evangelism. Now, if Murray and I wanted to console ourselves, we could say to each other, you know, we're a young church, we needed to build culture first, and so that's why we were focused on culture. But that's not the full story. What the minimum factor is saying is, we are not focused externally. We're focused internally. And if our focus remains internal, we will die. Or we'll, even if we don't die, we will not grow. We must have an external focus to grow. So, behind this, you know, we had the highest score with 80, and, and some of that score came from uh, questions that we rated ourselves 90. Here's how we rated ourselves on evangelism. And one question, we got a one, which I don't know if it's possible to get a lower score. So this is a real minimum factor. And what this says is, our church tries to help those in need with food, clothing, education, counsel, etc. And we said, we don't do this. We call ourselves Christian, but we don't look after those in need. So that is a minimum factor. And it's identifying an area of need. The next lowest area says, the leaders of our church support individual Christians in their evangelistic endeavors. So the leaders, Jan, can I include you as well? I don't want Murray and I to take all the heat. <laughs> so as leaders, you brethren, when you want to, to go out and evangelize, we're not doing anything to support you. So this is a minimum factor. The next lowest says, there is a lot of creativity in the evangelistic activities of our church. And again, that's below average. And we can give you copies of this, brethren, to look at. 
And, and what we're going to be doing is forming a, a committee of volunteers to address the minimum factor. So we're going to look at these. We're going to understand exactly what is wrong, why we perceive ourselves this way, and then take concrete steps to lift up that minimum factor so that the church can grow. Okay. Before I go to Acts, we're going to now shift gears and go to Acts so we can continue our Bible study. But any, any questions or comments on what we've seen so far with the maximum and the minimum factor of our church and, and how God sees that? Is, is it clear? Does everybody understand it? Yes. Um, actually, what I will ask, uh, think about it, but we want to put if, together a if group. If I could say something. Oh, yes, sorry. Absolutely. Uh, although we were not visible as a congregation, as a church doing charitable works, I suspect that individually we're doing charitable works. Good point. Uh, in our households, and uh, I would suspect that true believers uh, would do that anyway. Good point. We just haven't uh, uh, mustered something for this church. Thank you. Good point. I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> Uh, let's look now, brethren, and I just ask you, uh, please, uh, let's put together a team of volunteers working with uh, Deacon Jan and myself, and let's address this. Let's fix it and, and, and make the church even healthier than it is today and avoid the risk for Satan to come in. Again, that internal focus, Satan loves that, and, and, and he can weaken us if we're just thinking about ourselves. So we've got to shift gears now. We've built a good culture. We need to shift gears and think of others and serve others. Let's go to Acts. Uh, we're in Acts. We're up to Acts 6, but let's just go back to Acts 4. Just as a reminder, we're looking at the Jerusalem church. And when we go to Acts 6, I want you to think about it in terms of this minimum factor. But first, let's just remind ourselves that what we've seen in the book of Acts is, is first of all, it's a continuation of Luke's writing, uh, from the Gospel of Luke right into Acts, Volume 1, which uh, Luke is showing the works and teachings of Christ. And then in Volume 2, uh, which is the book of Acts, he's showing the works and teachings of Christ as he continues in his body. So now he's arisen, he's in heaven, he's the head. The body continues to do the same works and teach the same teachings as Christ did through the Gospel of Luke. Then we saw in, in chapter 2, they were together counting up. They had been educated by Christ for 40 days. They counted another 10 days to Pentecost, and they received the Holy Spirit. When they received the Holy Spirit, it transformed them. And they became very bold and very powerful in the proclamation of the truth. And so from Acts 2, what we've been watching is how the Holy Spirit empowers them to preach the gospel with, with, with courage, without any fear. Uh, and let's just see in Acts 4, verse 13. Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that boldness is, is the miracle of the Holy Spirit. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, so they had not gone to the uh, religious schools that were there, they actually learned from Christ, they marveled. And this is best in class. So Peter and John preached the gospel in a way that was best in class. And the people marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Dropping down to verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatening. So Peter and John have been released. The brethren are now praying to God. And they're acknowledging how threatening 
the authorities are, this conflict of laws. And grant unto your servants, you know, the ability to run really fast so that they can escape their tormentors. No, that with all boldness, they may speak your word. And that's the power and that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit through Acts, that they can speak the word, uh, the word of God in face of opposition with boldness. In verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happened? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So that's what we're seeing is how the Holy Spirit is empowering them to preach with boldness. Now, that, I would say, is the maximum factor. That, that is what's going to drive church growth. And in fact, it does. The fact that they can, in the face of this incredible opposition, preach the word of God with boldness. And the disciples just keep multiplying because of this maximum factor. Up to now, what we've seen is the church is in unity. There is very strong unit. They're all in one accord. There's unity. Everything is really going well. They're healthy as a church. In Acts 5, Satan tries to attack them through Ananias and Sapphira. The Holy Spirit deals with that. Now we come to Acts 6, where we have another attack by the devil. Acts 6 says, And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, again from the maximum factor, they're preaching the word of God with boldness. And so the disciples are multiplying. The church is growing. There arose a murmuring, uh-oh, this is the first time we see this. The church is now divided. So from, from Acts 2, there's this one accord, there's unity all the way through. Now we have division. There's a murmuring. Why? From the Grecians against the Hebrews. So this is an ethnic division, a division among ethnic lines. Why? Why would there be this division among ethnic lines? Because their widows, the Grecian widows, the Greek women, were neglected in the daily ministration. Remember in Acts 5, we had this situation where there was so much support for the preaching of the gospel that those who had property started to sell their property, take the proceeds, and lay it at the apostles' feet. So now the church has quite a bit of wealth to administer. The church has a Hebrew root. The church is not Greek. This, this Greco-Roman version of Christianity has nothing to do with the church. The church's root is Hebrew. All of the early church were Jews, with the exception uh, perhaps of Luke and maybe a few others. But all of, those, all of the apostles were Israelites. Now, the Holy Spirit is multiplying. There is now mon money to be administered in the church. And it seems, I'm a Hebrew. You're a Hebrew. Let me look after your widows. So the money is now being channeled from Hebrew to Hebrew. And the Greeks are being neglected. If you were a widow at this time, you were in big trouble. You had nothing. It's not like you'll say, oh, let me go and find a job. Maybe I'll be a secretary at John Deere. There's no such opportunity like that. So as a widow, hopefully you have sons or a brother or a father that will look after you. 
But if you don't have that, especially if you've joined a strange sect and they've disowned you, you're in big trouble. So these women are in big trouble, maybe to the point of their survival is at stake. And those who have the money are looking after the Hebrews. Because, they're well, if you're a Hebrew, you're a real Christian. If you're a Greek, that's kind of like an add-on Christian. So there's sort of the, now there's this two-tier society, the real Christians and second-class citizens. That seems to be what's creeping in here. And so the second-class citizens are being neglected. Acts 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them. So big church now. So the apostles are seeing this, this problem. And so they call all the disciples together, Greek and Hebrew. And they said, it's not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So, first of all, the context, as we've read, is a time of severe persecution. The Jewish authorities are all over the church to try to stamp it out. We, the apostles, cannot neglect our duty to preach the gospel boldly in this environment to look after tables and and this look after tables let us not uh interpret this as to be waiters so it's not that you know we don't want to be waiters because i've actually been to congregations where you'll see the deacon actually physically serving tables believing that he's being faithful to this scripture that's not what the scripture is saying this is not a kind of lowly, mediocre waitressing or waitering, waiter job. This is a management responsibility. There's a lot of money to be managed. We can't take on this management responsibility. The, the, the Greek is diakonin trapezes, which really means to provide resources or to administer resources in order to sustain life. This is a serious responsibility. It's just that there's a higher priority. We have to preach the word of God. Yes, I realize people might die if this isn't looked after. So this is a priority. It's just that there's another priority which is even higher. So, so what do we do? We have to address this. The, not, not only can people physically die, the church could be split. If, if we're going to be favoring Hebrews and neg- neglecting Greeks... Uh, this could cause a real problem for the Satan could take advantage of us. So this has to be addressed. But it's not reasonable that we who were with Christ and were eyewitnesses of, of Christ and his resurrection and were taught directly by him, only we can do this preaching. So we have to do this. We need, we need another solution to administer the resources. So what is that solution? Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, you look out among yourselves and find seven men of honest report full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. So, so first of all, as we look at this, let's realize that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. So we have to deal with our minimum factor. We're not going to say, okay, find seven men and appoint them over the, our, our minimum factor. This is describing what they did. We need to understand what they did, extract the wisdom from what they did, and apply it to our situation. 
So here, you brethren, this is real wisdom. The church is facing a crisis of trust. We believe the gospel. We came in believing Christ is God and believing the word of God. And now we're being treated like second class citizens. Uh, I'm not sure we can trust you anymore. So if the apostle said, okay, we pick these seven men, let, let, let them look after it. That might not address the trust issue. So through the Holy Spirit, what they said is, you brethren, you pick seven men. Why seven men? I don't know. Maybe there's a, if, if we lived there at the time, it might have been really obvious. There might have been like seven categories that had to be looked after. Or maybe there's some spiritual reason. We don't know, but they told them, you pick seven. But you pick it. You decide among yourselves. We will give you the criteria. It's not who you like. It's not who's the tallest. It's, it's not who was, is wealthy. Look for this criteria. Two things. Full of the Holy Spirit. Honest report. Or three things. Honest report. So good reputation. Is not known to be a swindler. Full of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost has come and filled the church with the Holy Spirit. Find men who are really filled with it. And wisdom. Because it's going to take wisdom. This is a contentious issue. And the church is about to be ruptured. Satan is attacking. So we need men with wisdom who can look at the situation, the needs, and figure out limited resources, lots of need. It's going to take some wisdom. So look for these kind of men. Now, does it say, find these men and then let them look after it? The, the, the apostles are not abdicating the responsibility of managing the church. They're delegating the responsibility. So find these men and then bring them to us so that we may appoint them over this business, over this critical business. Again, that, that this business kind of makes it sound like a trivial matter. This is a critical matter. But we, the apostles, will appoint these men over this business. And so this solves the problem, but it doesn't distract us from the work that we are uniquely gifted to do. We were with Christ. We are the apostles. We have to go into this Jewish hostile territory and preach Jesus in their temples. And we are uniquely qualified to do this. We, it's not reasonable for us who can only do this to leave this and manage the household. So find these honest men, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Let them manage this critical affair to protect the church from this minimum factor. And we can continue to focus on our priority. And again, this isn't saying that you know, some, some ministers will say, I, I only pray. I, I only pray and preach. This is descriptive. This is what was happening at that time. This was the priority at that time. The wisdom that we extract from it is, what's our priority? We're not apostles. But what is our priority? What are the things that must be addressed by us, especially in the future, when we are facing a crisis of persecution? There are things that we have to do boldly, and it can't be that we're looking after everything. And so we have to find honest men of good report, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, to look after these other affairs. But verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So again, they are the ones that were taught by Christ. 
They are the ones that saw Christ, saw him die, saw him resurrected. And also, they're the ones that will go into the temple at the prayer times and pray with the Jewish community and demonstrate that this Christianity is not a departure. It's not a Greco-Roman departure from the Hebrew root. It is a, it is a fulfillment of the Hebrew root. And so they need to be doing that. And the saying, verse 5, please the whole multitude. These are thousands of brethren who, who are very concerned about this matter. And the wisdom that was given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles was, you pick the men, look for these three criteria, pick seven, bring them to us, we will appoint them over this matter, and we will focus on the higher priority of prayer and the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte, proselyte of Antioch. So now the unity has been restored. If the minimum factor was neglected, Satan would have had a heyday. Church would have went up in smoke. But they addressed the minimum factor while leveraging the maximum factor. And unity now has been restored. Whom they set before the apostles. Again, it's not church, run off and do your own thing. Uh, Deacon Jan mentioned last week or the week before about the fact that there is authority in the church. And, and we've kind of gotten kind of wishy-washy and, or, or just arrogant, uh, kind of uh, con- uh, imbibing the, the, the attitude of the world. And we don't want anybody telling us what to do. Here the church understood. This is a matter. We're going we're to solve it ourselves. We'll, we'll pick the men, but then we'll bring them to you. So then they set them before the apostles. And when the apostles had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Again, the deacons are coming under the authority of the apostles. They're not running off doing their own thing. They're, they're an extension now of the authority of the apostles. So what was the result of addressing the minimum factor? Verse 7, and the word of God increased. So that's the maximum factor. So they could continue preaching the word of God. It increased, and the number of disciples multiplied. There's the fruit. So there's the fruit of the decision. The number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. Notice it multiplied greatly. I guess you could say it was kind of an exponential growth as a result of this decision. But notice this. Not only did the number of disciples multiply greatly, it also says, or Luke also says, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And that again is showing the fruit of the apostles saying it's not reasonable that we should leave the ministry of the word to serve tables. We're in a unique position of being able to go into the temple and preach the word of God in a way that the priests will understand, yes, this is a fulfillment of our scriptures. And so it says here, as a result of that, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. In previous associations that Jennifer and I have been in, the teaching was that ministers look after spiritual matters and deacons 
look after physical matters. And they point to Act 6. That teaching must come from a different Act 6 than this Act 6. Because it's very clear Stephen was a deacon. He was appointed to look after this matter. That in no way restricted him from spiritual work. In fact, in chapter 7, when we go there next, we're going to see one of the longest sermons, if not the longest sermon in the Bible, given by a deacon. So don't conclude from this passage that deacons are restricted to physical activity. We need trustworthy men to look after a critical matter, a matter of life and death, both physically for the widows and spiritually for the church. And that was the purpose of having these deacons in place. Notice now with Stephen, who's called out as one of the deacons, and Stephen, full of faith and power, made sure that he only looked after moving chairs and lecterns and doing physical things. This is ridiculous. He's a man full of faith and power, filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he do? He did great wonders. And that made the apostles jealous. Uh, Oh, you're doing great things. I'm the one that needs to be doing great things. This is ridiculous. The Holy Spirit is moving in the church. And Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's doing great wonders and miracles among the people. And I'm telling you, the apostles rejoice when they see the Holy Spirit working. Then, so... What happens next? Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Stephen was involved in debate. The clash of ideas. When these ideas clash, false ideas collapse. And the truth stands firm. And so Stephen, this deacon, not only was he doing great wonders and miracles among the people, those from the synagogue, those in authority, who came to challenge the truth, they couldn't challenge Stephen. He was able to withstand them with his knowledge of the truth. So they were disputing with him. And it... This is really a a debate. It means to seek or examine together, to really drill down and examine the, the teachings. Stephen understood. Notice this. He was best in class. He preached the gospel in a way he was best in class. So that, verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They came, these religious authorities saying, this is what the scripture says. And Stephen stood up and said, wait a minute. Read that passage again, because this is what it means. And they couldn't resist him. Verse 11. So, you know, in this class of ideas, we're going to bring religious authorities who claim to have the truth. And we're going to oppose their understanding, civilly, with love. We're not arrogant. We want to see all men come to Christ. So we're going to stand up and say, I think you're wrong here. Here's what the scripture actually says. They're going to come back 
we hope to be best in class so that no matter what they come back with, we have the truth and the truth stands. And we certainly expect the same response that Stephen got. They couldn't withstand him. So when the truth was clear, these men simply said, wow, now I see the truth. How how do I become a member of the church? Is that how they responded? No, this is what they did. Verse 11. And they suborned men, gathered men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Again, this concept of the clash of laws. So, when these people come to dispute, they're not searching for the truth. We don't dispute with them hoping they'll convert. But we do dispute with them to stand for the truth. And those who are listening, whom God is calling, they will hear the truth. They will receive faith. They will be converted. So the dispute is not for those religious people who want to hold on to power and are trying to use religion to manipulate others. The dispute is not for them. The dispute is for those who are sincerely wondering which side is true. And they can hear, they can hear the truth stand up to all of these arguments. And they're the ones that God is, that, that God is calling that we are working for. But here, we expect the disputers to come with false accusations, to have us arrested, to have us humiliated, to accuse us of blasphemy. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And, you know, Stephen's a faithful man. They're making this, these are false accusations. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Surely this would change them now when they see the face of an angel. No, they're stuck. They're in prison by the devil. And they're going to do the devil's work. They can have long beards, long robes, turbans, crosses, all kinds of religiosity. They're evil. And they're trapped by the devil. And we don't expect anything but hostility from them. But the Holy Spirit enables us to preach with boldness so that others can hear whom God, whom God is calling. I think what I wanted to just point out here again with Stephen's example, he was appointed to look after the minimum factor. And yet he was very much involved in the maximum factor. The maximum factor was to preach the word with boldness. And he did that while he looked after the minimum factor to save the church. So as we address our minimum factor, it's not so that we can neglect the maximum factor. The maximum factor is the natural church development. It's, it's what's giving our congregation momentum. We need to, address, we need to leverage that. But we need to address the minimum factor so that we don't allow Satan to come in and disrupt the church. Let's conclude 
brethren, in 1 Corinthians 11. So we looked here at the Jerusalem congregation and how they dealt with the minimum factor. Let's conclude by looking at the Corinthian congregation. First Corinthians 11 and verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Corinth had strengths. It's a very gifted church. But it also had a minimum factor. And their minimum factor was causing people to be weak and sickly, and even for brethren to die. So the Apostle Paul is telling them, address your minimum factor. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So what we've done by doing this survey, and it's not all rosy, we didn't get back straight A's, but what we did is we judged ourselves. And it's the scripture tells us, if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So we have the opportunity, rather than Christ saying, I have somewhat against you, We have the opportunity now to go to Christ and say, we are weak. We're weak in this area. We need your help. And I think that's a much better relationship than for Christ to come to us and us to try to resist what he's showing to us. Let us go to him and ask him for help. If we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, as Ephesus was, I have somewhat against you. And we are chastened of the Lord, as Ephesus was. It was that they should not be condemned with the world. Christ loves his church. If he has to chasten the church, it's not to destroy the church. It's to lead the church to repentance so that the church is not destroyed. God God operates from love. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, address the minimum factor. Wait for one another. Show love for one another. Don't allow Satan to take advantage of you. And if any man hunger and can't wait, let him eat at home so that he does not allow this minimum factor to thrive. That you come not together unto condemnation. And notice this final passage here, or this final statement from Paul. And the rest will I set in order when I come. In other words, there's a lot of stuff going on in this congregation. We can't address it all at once. What I need you to do is focus on the minimum factor. When I come, we'll deal with the rest. But the priority is the minimum factor. Because that's the door that Satan will come through and destroy the church. So, Jerusalem's minimum factor is different than our minimum factor. Ephesus' minimum factor is different than our minimum factor. Corinthians' minimum factor is different than our minimum factor. But let's not fool ourselves. We have a minimum factor. And we don't want to hear Christ say, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, but I have somewhat against you. We want to hear Christ say, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. Well done my good and faithful servant. This has been a podcast.
broadcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.